Beloved, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, as we continue our series on confessing Christ at Christmas. Please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, and all-sufficient word, Matthew chapter 1, and beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Amen. As far the reading of God's word, would you pray with me? Our loving Father, we pray that you would, by your spirit, illumine our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus that we would receive your word, that we would, by your grace, believe your word, and that we would respond to your word with faith and with love and joyful devotion and submission to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. According to the belief of all the historic branches of the Christian church, Jesus of Nazareth was born without a human father, being conceived by the Holy Ghost and born of the Virgin Mary. So stated J. Gresham Machen in the opening line of his 1924 address on the virgin birth of Christ. Of course, Machen was right. The virgin birth is fundamental to the historic Christian faith and witness. To truly believe in Christ and his gospel is to believe in the virgin birth. It's, an ascent, it's essential to Christianity. It's as essential to Christianity as Christ's eternal preexistence and his resurrection from the dead. Indeed, without the virgin birth, beloved, there is no gospel. Without the virgin birth, there is no Christian faith. Many try to convince you that there is a place for Christianity, that there can be a Christian faith without the virgin birth, without the resurrection, without the miracles of Christ. You can go right down the road to a mainline church, and this is what you will hear. You probably won't hear it from the pulpit, but if you were to ask ministers and elders uh, what they actually mean by the words they say, you would be quite surprised that they mean something very different than we do about words like God sin, Jesus, his birth, his life, 
the cross. All of these things are still in the liturgy, still spoken of, but have completely different definitions. Completely different definitions. Without the virgin birth, there is no Christian faith. Without the virgin birth, there is no true historical Christmas story. Only a colorful collection of whimsical myths and fairy tales. Dear ones, please hear this. If there is no virgin birth, then we as guilty sinners have no hope in this world, a world full of sin and error pining as we sing the great hymn of Christmas. But the glad tidings of Christmas that we are reflecting upon this morning and this Advent season is that the eternal uh, Son of God was born of a virgin. Indeed, he willingly came down from heaven, set aside his glory with the Father, was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and was born of her in Bethlehem. This is no myth or fable, it's historical fact. If it is not, we are all wasting our time here this morning. So many want to talk about their truth in our day. Their truth. This is my truth. How dare you question it? If that's all it is, is our truth, we are all fools here this morning. But if it is the truth, if it is rooted in historical fact, then we are here to look to God and to his son for our salvation. This is the truth that the church has been unashamedly confessing for two millennium. We are not on an island. We are not innovators. We join a chorus of voices that have been using creeds uh, such as the Apostles and Nicene Creeds and the Reformed Confession, such as the Westminster Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism, to confess this very truth that Jesus was born of a virgin. It's also truth that Christians have been singing since the day of Christ's birth. You know, the opening, opening chapters of Luke are wonderful because they just sing. Uh, they sing. We have the songs of the angels, the song of Mary, the song of Zechariah, the song of Simeon. It, uh, the early chapters of Luke sing in the birth narratives, and we continue to sing these wonderful hymns of the faith. In 1739, Charles Wesley wrote his theologically rich Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Verse 2 highlights the incarnation and virgin birth. Quote, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the, what, everlasting Lord. He is everlasting. He's, he's the eternal word. He's the Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. The virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Or how about the beautiful traditional English carol, What Child Is This, that we sang earlier. So bring him incense, gold and myrrh, come peasant king to own him. The king of kings salvation brings, let loving hearts enthrone him. Raise, raise the song on high, the virgin sing her lullaby. Joy, joy, for Christ is born, the babe, the son of Mary. Let us not forget about the glorious mid-18th century Latin hymn, Adeste Fidelis, 
otherwise known as, O come all ye faithful. Again, that we sang earlier, borrowing language from the Nicene Creed. Verse 2 says this, God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. The virgin's womb. Here we have this wonderful, glorious truth in this hymn that we confess in our creeds and confessions. One thing that marks modern day Christian choruses and hymnody is how theologically vacuous they are. As we've mentioned before, many times in this, in our worship services, what we see in terms of the decline of church attendance, the exodus of young people from the church, it is largely rooted in the fact that the church is not discipling its people. Creeds and confessions have been put aside. The focus becomes anecdotes and stories, personality plus of the ministers. But here, in the hymns written in the 18th century, we have a focus on Christ as God of God, of the same substance of the Father, light of light. He is not a, a manifestation of God. He is God. And he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created. O come, let us adore him. For he is Christ the Lord. Dear ones, Christians throughout the ages have sung and confessed this truth. But the question remains, why is this doctrine so important? So fundamental to orthodox, historic Christianity. Why is it so important that we proclaim this truth and teach it to our covenant children? Well, reason number one is this. The virgin birth of Christ is revealed in God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. The virgin birth of Christ is revealed in God's inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word. It's found in Matthew 1 and, and is found with even greater detail in Luke chapter 2. Therefore, to question the veracity of the miraculous virgin birth is to question the veracity of the scriptures entirely. And this is, in fact, again, what the liberal mainline churches have done. And, and, and not just to, uh, uh, to underscore the unbelief and rejection of scripture of the mainline church in America and the state churches around the world, because there are many, many beautiful cathedrals and churches and places like Germany uh, and all over Scandinavia where the gospel was once preached 200 years ago, but now they are empty shells of unbelief. Um, let us not just focus on that, but let us talk about even the modern-day, broad and superficial approach to Christianity, which makes it all about us and our experience. You see, here we are reminded that the gospel is rooted in facts, historical facts. And we put our hope and our trust uh, in the word of God. Um, no longer holding to the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of scripture and seeking the approval of the culture, many have called into question everything in the Bible, from the doctrine of the person and work of Christ to the way of salvation to the definition of marriage. 
those who negotiate the virgin birth almost always deny the bodily resurrection and uh, a host of miracles uh, that he performed in his public ministry. And to deny this is to deny the Christian faith altogether. Again, listen to what Machen writes in his essay on the virgin birth in 1924. This is in 1924 he is speaking in these terms. hundred years ago. Quote, Two opposite views of Jesus of Nazareth are struggling for the ascendancy in the church today. According to one view, Jesus was a teacher who initiated a new type of religious life, who founded Christianity being the first Christian. Uh, what he explains here elsewhere is that Jesus was seen really just as a moral example and uh, one who provides some good advice and some, uh, some life coaching but then he writes, according to the other view, he was the eternal son of God who came voluntarily into this world from outside the world and who founded Christianity by redeeming men from the guilt and power of sin. The conflict between these two views is the conflict between naturalism and supernaturalism. And that is not a conflict between two varieties of Christianity, but two mutually exclusive religions. End quote. Christianity is founded upon Jesus Christ's incarnation, virgin birth, sinless life, atoning death, bodily resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Christ as king over all. Christianity is built on supernaturalism. The one true God sending his eternal and only son into the world to save us from the power and penalty of our wretched sins. To deny these facts about Jesus is to undermine the scriptures and to reject Christianity altogether. A second reason that we teach and defend the doctrine of the virgin birth is that the virgin birth of Christ has been publicly confessed by the church for 2,000 years. We join the chorus of voices who confess this truth from throughout the ages. We considered last week why creeds and confessions are biblical and necessary for the church. They are the pattern of sound words that provide doctrinal standards for leadership and discipleship tools for the church. And dear ones, in an age of anti-intellectualism, anti-authority, and hyper-individualism, it's not always easy to maintain commitment to our confessions. But we must. John Fesco, in his excellent book entitled The Need for Creeds Today, states that, quote, we presently stand at a crossroads where we must reassess and refamiliarize ourselves with the biblical necessity and practical virtues of confessions of faith. And later he writes, when we create, profess, and pass confessions down to future generations, we do not propagate the dead faith of the living, but the living faith of the dead. We join hands with the saints from ages past to give witness to the lordship of the triune God and the redemption that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dear ones, we are not trying to reach the world by becoming like the world. We are not trying to get in the world's good graces or to find their approval. The church doesn't redo things or hit the reboot button every week as it concerns what we believe. We have confessions that we've been confessing from the earliest centuries of the church, like the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. The Nicene Creed. 
Jesus, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Belgic Confession, Article 18. Jesus was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit without male participation. That makes it very clear. Without male participation. Westminster Confession of Faith, 1647. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. All of this language is meant to refute ancient heresy and to help us all to clearly confess and to believe what the Bible teaches about the incarnation and birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what confessional Christians have been confessing for 2,000 years. A third reason the virgin birth is so important and must be fiercely defended is that the virgin birth is necessary for Christ to indeed be our sinless Savior and mediator. The virgin birth is necessary for Christ to be our sinless Savior and mediator. It's necessary for our salvation. Let me explain. If Jesus was born of natural and ordinary generation through the coming together of a man and a woman, then he would, like the rest of us, inherit Adam's sin. He would have been born in sin. Paul writes, you'll remember in Romans 5, that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. And then he goes on, many died through one man's trespass. And then later, one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. To make this point, early on in our confession, the Westminster Confession, chapter 6, paragraph 3, it summarizes this point. Listen, they, that is Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, that is, passed along to us, and the same death in sin corrupt nature conveyed to all of their prosperity. Now listen, descending from them by ordinary generation. This is giving us a little insight into the fact that the one who will come to save us from our sin will not be born of ordinary generation. He will be born of a virgin conceived by the Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. You see, dear ones, why the virgin birth is so necessary for our salvation? Christ was not conceived and born of natural generation. He was conceived through a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin, born without sin. The Heidelberg Catechism picks up on this as it unpacks the words of the Apostles' Creed. Question 35 says, what is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. Answer, that God's eternal Son, who is and continues to be true and eternal God, took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. He was of the seed of David. He was of the seed of David, but it did not come through natural generation because as you read at the end of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 17, 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, the 14 generations. I, uh, I'm going to read just earlier from that, verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Notice over and over it said, this man begat this man, this man begat this man, this man begat this man or woman in a couple of cases. And then it says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Jesus was not the natural son of Joseph, but only of Mary the virgin. What prophet do we receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? Question 36 of Heidelberg Catechism asks, what prophet do we receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity or birth? That he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. Dear ones, here again is the good news of the gospel at Christmas. We were conceived naturally through the coming together of a man and a woman, thus inheriting the sin of Adam and born in sin. Jesus, however, was conceived supernaturally and thus born in innocence and righteousness. He was born without sin and thus became the perfect mediator, fulfilling all the requirements of God's law during his righteous life, satisfying God's justice for us in his sacrificial death and conquering sin and hell and Satan in his glorious resurrection from the dead. You see, when the Virgin Mary held the infant Jesus in her arms, she was holding the only hope for sinful mankind. So many will point us to this hope or that, but he is the only true and lasting hope for sinful mankind, the only one who could give sinners peace and acceptance with God. His little shoulders and back would one day be whipped and forced to carry a wooden cross to a place of brutal execution. The infant, Jesus' tender brow, would one day be crowned with thorns. His small, silky hands and little feet would one day be nailed with spikes to a Roman cross. And it was all to pay the debt of your sin and my sin. Dear ones, this is why he came. Not for a sentimental reason. Not to merely give us some good advice, some life coaching. To be one of Numerous pathways to heaven. He was born to save us from the depths of hell. That is the message of Christmas. He was born to save us from eternal judgment. It's what that wonderful 12th century Christmas hymn conveys in the third verse. So come thou rod of Jesse free. 
thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell, thy people save and give them victory o'er the grave. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. With this backdrop in mind, let's consider for a few moments the text before us. Uh, This morning in Matthew chapter 1, look with me at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You notice these words in Scripture, before they came together. Before Joseph and Mary came together, she was found to be with child. God the Holy Spirit mysteriously overshadowed the Virgin Mary, and she became pregnant. We cannot comprehend such an amazing miracle, but we believe, along with the church throughout the ages, that God has done this, that God has done this. Charles Spurgeon wrote, quote, it is a deep, mysterious, and delicate subject, fitter for reverent faith than for speculative curiosity. Now, it's true that God has worked Many miracles in past times in terms of barren women. Think, for instance, of Sarah, Abraham's wife. She was about 90 years old. Her womb shriveled up and as good as dead. But then God miraculously blessed Abraham and Sarah's union, and they were with child, and they named him Isaac. We see similar stories of barrenness and then blessing in the lives of Hannah, the mother of the prophet Samuel. Elizabeth, a barren woman advanced in years who gave birth to John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. These were all miraculous in and of themselves, but none of them compares to the virgin birth. Christ was not conceived naturally, as in other cases, but supernaturally, without the seed of man, fulfilling prophecy written 700 years before by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7:14, which he quotes, Here in Matthew chapter 1, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. But when Joseph, Mary's betrothed, initially finds out about the pregnancy, he is heartbroken. You can imagine. To be betrothed in first century Jewish, Jewish culture was binding but without conjugal rights and privileges of marriage. That would only come after the ceremonies were conducted and dowries were dispersed. So Joseph knew that there was no chance that he was the father. He thought it must have been someone else. We do know that Joseph loved Mary dearly because of the way he handles the entire situation. Indeed, rather than expose her to public scorn in the Jewish courts, he chose to give her a certificate of divorce in private. According to Jewish law, he could have done either. Verse 19 says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But then Joseph finds out the real gospel story when he has a surprising dream, a clarifying dream. Look at verse 20 with me. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph goes to bed thoroughly discouraged, downcast, and then wakes up with a divine word of promise. His betrothed will give birth to the promised Messiah, the one who will save his people from their sins. The child's name would be Jesus. And this name Jesus is the the Latin rendering uh, for the Greek name Jesus, which is the Hellenized form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. Through this child born in Bethlehem of the Virgin Mary, God would bring salvation to helpless, guilty sinners. In in Him, through, through faith, sinful mankind could receive mercy and forgiveness and hope and meaning and purpose and everlasting life. In his dream, Joseph heard the true meaning and significance of Christmas. And all of this, verse 22 tells us, took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. As I noted earlier, Matthew quotes Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And then he adds this wonderful parenthesis. For those who might pass over this, not be clear about what Emmanuel means, he says, which means God with us. God with us. Dear ones, this time of year can be so special and is so special. But it can also be a time of year where pain emerges, uh, where there is grief over lost loved ones, where there are difficulties in relation to broken relationships. Here we are reminded that God is not aloof from you or me. He's not withdrawn. He's not remote. He's not disinterested in our lives or our helpless condition. Sometimes we may feel like this is the case when we allow our circumstances to get the better of us, to overwhelm us, and we take our eyes off the Lord's and we begin to live live by sight rather than by faith. But God has come near to us in Christ. He is Emmanuel. He is the gentle and lowly one that says, come to me, all you who are labor and who are laden and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Stop laboring and striving in your own strength and rest in me. Take comfort in me. I love you. I'm near you. I came for you. Does God seem far away? Here we learn that he has come near in the person of Christ. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have never received Christ's grace and forgiveness and mercy. You've been holding tightly onto your sin, onto your idols. Idols, by definition, are simply replacements for God. You've been holding on to those. You've been holding on to secret patterns of sin. You've been holding on uh, to some secret uh, uh, dream or, or focus that is displacing God in your life and you're living in unrepentant sin, what we learn here is that God sent his son to the earth to save sinners like you and like me. He didn't send his son Jesus into the world 
to do all that we have considered this morning, merely to be a good example. You sent him to suffer and to die for our salvation. So let us not think that we need to somehow clean up our lives so that we can be good enough to come to Christ. Christ came because he knew and knows that we are not good enough, that we do not reach the standard of God's perfection. That's why God the Father sent him to give us his son, his only begotten son, born of a virgin, sinless, to fulfill all righteousness for you and me, and then to die on the cross as a perfect substitute for you and for me, and to rise from the dead for you and for me. He has come near to us. Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? If not, I want to encourage you, I want to urge you, even now, to call upon his name. Lord, save me from my sins. Have mercy on me. Grant me your grace and forgiveness in Christ. For that is the good news of the gospel. That's the message of Christmas. What happens next? Look at verse 24 with me. We see a, an obedient response. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Here we cannot help but notice how Joseph responds to the command from the angel. He responds with faithful obedience. He doesn't procrastinate. He's not waiting. Joseph demonstrates a heart of faith by responding with joyful obedience. The true sign of authentic faith. One commentator wrote that, quote, without delay, demure, or reservation, Joseph obeyed. And beloved, here we are reminded again of the importance of prompt and sincere obedience. Uh, some of you will remember Calvin's uh, personal motto, uh, which was two hands with a flaming heart in it, where it said, promptly and sincerely in the service of God. What a beautiful picture of the Christian life. Promptly and sincerely in the service of God. May this be true of each one of us as we believe in and rejoice in our Savior this morning. We don't want to be like the hypocrite who says he believes in Christ and yet lives as if he does not. May we not be like Herod who with his mouth declared allegiance to the child King Jesus Tell me where he is so that I can worship him too, he said. But he was only in it to protect his own kingdom and even to murder the Christ child. Well, this brings us to our final heading, an exalted name. As part of Joseph's obedience, we see in verse 25 that he called his son's name Jesus. And this name would be the name above every other name, a name that would bring people to their knees in repentance, faith, and worship. The Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians 2 provides us with this uh, tremendous recounting of the ministry and mission of Christ, the one who walked uh, the pathway of humiliation and suffering to exaltation and glory. Philippians 2 and verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Other translations say he made himself a man of no reputation. He laid aside his glory and, 
and took on human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, this is the true meaning and significance of Christmas, that the eternal Son of God assumed human flesh, was born of a virgin, perfectly satisfied the requirements of the law, gave his life as a righteous substitute on the cross on Calvary. He was born in a manger for the express purpose of dying on a cross so that through faith in him we would receive mercy and new life and no true and lasting joy in our Savior. Beloved, Christmas time is a, a powerful reminder that we cannot save ourselves. We cannot repair our relationship with God through our good works. We cannot argue our way out of hell through excuses and justifications for our sin. Why do that? Why attempt to do it? We are born with sin, affecting every constituent part of us. God knows this about us. That's why he sent his son. Sin affects our minds, our wills, our hearts, and our affections. In our natural state, we are dead in sin and spiritually incapable of glorifying God and loving our neighbor. We are great sinners, and so we need a great Savior, and the Lord has given us one, one who was not born in sin through natural generation, but one who was born of a virgin to save us from what our sins deserve, to bring us back into fellowship with God, to give us new hearts, to give us an eternal hope and perspective. Do you know him? He came for you. He came for you. He came all the way from heaven for you. From the majestic courts of heaven to a lowly, smelly stable. Believe and rejoice in him this morning. Believe in him. I was reading yesterday morning through some of the tracks of J.C. Ryle. Banner of Truth has published them called Christmas Thoughts. And it's extraordinary to me how over and over and over again, Bishop Ryle, a 19th century, is calling people in light of the Christmas story to repent and believe the gospel. Believe this. Why do you not come to Christ when such a gift has been given to you? Is that you this morning? Believe in the one who was born for you. Of the Virgin Mary, the one whose name is Jesus and who saves his people from their sin. And dear one, if you are in Christ, united to him, may this be an occasion to call upon the Lord in rejoicing and gratitude and with a desire, as Paul exhorts the Thessalonians, to excel still more in gratitude and in growing obedience, childlike obedience. And the words of Charles Wesley, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, 
born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Amen. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we give you thanks for the incarnation, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we thank you for the virgin birth. We thank you that the Savior, your Son, our Lord, was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit and born of her. One person with two natures, both a human and divine nature. He became one of us without ceasing to be God. In order to do that which Adam failed to do, which Eve failed to do, and which we failed to do. To save us and rescue us from Satan's tyranny and from the depths of hell. Oh God, we thank you. And we pray that our relationship with you would not be lived in light of some kind of abject guilt and fear, but out of love and true and saving faith, united to Christ, accepted in the beloved, loved by you with an everlasting love. And we pray this in Jesus' name.